Greetings, everyone. I'm Paul Pepys, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. I want to welcome you to this, the OHC's annual Luther S. and Dorothy Cecilia Cressman Lecture in the Humanities. Before introducing this year's Cressman Lecture, I have a couple of uh, brief announcements as always. We'll have time for Q&A at the end of the talk. If you have questions at that point, type your questions into the chat feature of Zoom. I will moderate and ask the questions. We've also enabled the closed captioning function of Zoom, which you can activate by hovering over the live transcript uh, button at the bottom of the Zoom window. The talk is being recorded and will be available for viewing tomorrow on the Oregon Humanities Center's website and YouTube channel. I also need to give my customary thanks. First, thanks to the Wayne Moore Center for Law and Politics and their entire team for their co-sponsorship support and collaboration. The Moore Center's current theme is science, policy, and the public, a two-year exploration of the intersections between science, politics, policy, and justice. You can learn more about the Moore Center and their events and activities at waynemorecenter.uoregon.edu. Second, thanks as always to the Oregon Humanities Center's terrific staff, Associate Director Gina Turner, Program Coordinator Melissa Gustafson, Communications Coordinator uh, Peg Gerhardt, and our Student Assistant Kaya Freeman. During the COVID pandemic, our staff has done an amazing job translating and transferring all we do at the OHC into remote form. I'm really grateful for their efforts. Last but not least, I need to thank the OHC's generous donors without whom we could not support the kind of innovative humanities research, teaching and public programming that we do. It gives me great pleasure now to introduce this year's Crestman lecturer, Naomi Oreskes, the Henry Charles Lee Professor of the History of Science at Harvard University. The Cressman Lecture in the Humanities was inaugurated in 1994 with a generous bequest from former UO anthropology professor and archaeologist Luther S. Cressman. The inaugural Cressman Lecture was delivered by N. Scott Mamaday in 1996. The, lecture, the lectureship's goal is the presentation and illumination of fundamental humanities issues confronting societies centrally occupied with science, technology, and business. Given both the Cressman Lecture's stress on fundamental humanities issues confronting societies centrally occupied with science, technology, and business, as well as the moment we find ourselves in, a moment of pandemic, social and political division and unrest, and skepticism about science, I can't imagine anyone better suited to serve as our Cressman Lecturer than Naomi Oreskes. Professor Oreskes is the Henry Charles Lee Professor of the History of Science at Harvard University. She's the author and, or co-author of seven books and over 150 articles, essays, and opinion pieces, including Merchants of Doubt from 2010, The Collapse of Western Civilization from 2014, Discerning Experts from 2019, Why Trust Science from 2019, and Science on a Mission, American Oceanography from the Cold War to Climate Change, forthcoming in April of 2021. In 2018, Professor Oreskes was named a Guggenheim Fellow for a new book project with Eric Conway, The Magic of the Marketplace, The True History of a False Idea, forthcoming from Bloomsbury Press. Professor Oreskes' lecture today promises to bring her incomparable expertise in the history of science, her deep commitments to education and the truth, and her brilliant insights and wit to the timely and urgent topic, Can Science Be Saved? Please join me in welcoming Naomi Oreskes. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here with you. And everyone can hear me? Yeah, good. Okay. 
Well, I'd like to start. Well, first of all, thank you for that generous introduction. It is really a pleasure to be with you and to speak on this topic. So I'm going to start with a surprise. My title today is Can Science Be Saved? And actually, science doesn't need to be saved. The scientific enterprise in America is alive and well and thriving. Just consider the events of this last year, the emergence of the novel SARS-CoV-2 virus and with it COVID-19 as a disease. If we think about how scientists and science responded to this thing, scientists did an amazing job. In just a few week, weeks, scientists were able to identify the new virus, to demonstrate that it was a novel pathogen, and to demonstrate that it was the pathogen that was causing the COVID-19 illness. And scientists did this by sequencing the DNA of the virus. Now, this is a science-based technology that didn't exist when I was a child, and maybe when many of you. It's something that scientists were able to develop by studying uh, DNA and studying what it would take to sequence DNA and to use DNA sequencing to be able to conclusively identify uh, different pathogens and the diseases that they cause. Now, today we take this totally for granted, right? We talk about sequencing DNA as if it's no big deal, but it's a really big deal and it's new and it's different and it's powerful and it's happened within our lifetimes. So it's just one really concrete example of how science has operated successfully uh, to empower us to understand a really important piece of the natural world. So the advances of science have not stopped. The discoveries have not stopped. Science is alive and well and thriving. But more than that, why is it that we want to understand the natural world? Well, we want to understand the natural world for at least two reasons. One is because our lives are enriched when we understand the world around us, but also because when we have knowledge of the natural world, we can use that knowledge to do things that we want to do. And in this case, the key crucial thing of this year was the development of an effective vaccination against this new virus. This is an incredible scientific success story. In under a year, less than 12 months, scientists produced not just one, but several vaccines against this novel pathogen. And these vaccines are proving astonishingly effective. The Moderna vaccine that is now in use was shown to be 94% effective in clinical trials in preventing the COVID-19 illness. The Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, similarly, 95% effective in clinical trials. And in some really good news that just came out this week from Israel, where the entire country has now been vaccinated, we now know that it not only stops the disease, the expression of the disease, but it also prevents asymptomatic transmission and therefore stops the spread. So this is hugely important in terms of bringing this pandemic, hopefully finally to a close sometime in the coming months. And then there's the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. It's often been described in the news media as less effective because in clinical trials, it was only 72% effective in preventing disease compared to 94 or 95. So that's a lot less than the other two, but it was still 100% effective in preventing death. So this is actually huge, right? None of us really worry about catching a cold because we know that colds don't kill us. And we mostly don't worry about catching the flu until we get to be of a certain age because the flu generally doesn't kill people under the age of 65. But COVID-19 was killing people of all ages. And the fact that this vaccine is 100% effective against death is a huge accomplishment. Moreover, again, in the last week or two, we've seen new data coming out from the efficacy of the um, 
of the vaccination. And we now have strong data that shows that the efficacy of this vaccine increases over time. And at the 56-day mark, that is to say 56 days after vaccination, the efficacy of the J&J vaccine reaches 90 to 95%. So in other words, almost as effective as the Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech vaccines. So these results show us that our scientific enterprise is working well. Scientists did exactly what we want them to do, to take basic knowledge, fundamental knowledge of the natural world and use it to do something effective stage an effective intervention, an intervention that helps us live healthier lives, or in this case, helps us live, period. So these results show us that our scientific enterprise is working. Now, you may say, well, okay, that's fine. Scientists are doing what they're supposed to do, but people no longer trust science. And many people have seen, there have been many newspaper reports, newspaper magazine articles, television shows, radio programs about the crisis of trust in science. And because I wrote a book whose title is Why Trust Science, many people assume that I believe that there is a crisis of trust in science. And I wrote the book to remedy that crisis. But actually that's not right. There is no general crisis of trust in science. We have several high quality studies of public opinion that examine how American, the American people think about science. And what they show is that by and large, the vast majority of Americans still like science. They still trust science. And they think that science in general makes their lives better. So one recent study was performed by the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. It's called Perceptions of Science in America. And you can find it on their website. And one of the fascinating things that these data show is that the majority of, science, of Americans trust science and that this has not changed since the 1970s. So this is really important for us to take on board. We all have this, or many of us have this perception of this massive loss of trust in science, but actually the data don't support that, which makes us realize we have to think that there's something else going on. And in a minute, I'll get to what that something else might be. But what do we know from these studies? Well, what we know, first of all, is that large majorities of the American people trust scientists to A, tell the truth, B, conduct research in the best interests of humanity, three, C, accurately report findings, and D, give impartial evidence. So this is actually great news. This is exactly what scientists are supposed to do. Conduct research in the interests of humanity, report the findings accurately, be impartial, and tell the truth. And most Americans believe that scientists do, in fact, do that. Now, there are a few things that Americans are not so sure about. For example, the results were much more mixed when people were asked, can we trust scientists to report findings that go against the interests of their sponsor? It turned out that more than half of all Americans were not sure that we could trust scientists in that case. But that's a good thing. This shows the American people are actually wise because this is in fact an issue in science. We know that there are problems in certain areas of science, particularly in uh, areas funded by big pharma, where there have been conflicts of interest that have affected whether or not scientists report their data fully. So the American people are trusting science in the way that they should, but they're also wisely savvy or cautious about certain areas where there is in fact justification to be cautious. So reading this report made me feel much better about my fellow Americans and made me realize that broadly, the landscape of science in America is actually in pretty good shape. Moreover, if we ask the question about trust in scientific leadership, we see similar, actually quite reassuring findings. In fact, scientific leaders are the most trusted group in America, second only to the military. 
Now, this is also extremely interesting because if you look at the data from these reports, uh, from the 1970s to the 1990s, scientists were actually the most trusted group in America. And this is a, was a comparison with the military, banks and financial institutions, Congress, and the press. Starting in the 1990s, something changed, but it wasn't a change, a decrease in trust in science. In fact, trust in science remained almost exactly the same. What happened was trust in the military went up a lot and trust in all other groups went down and some a lot. So today, less than 10% of Americans have confidence in Congress, less than 10% have confidence in the press. But science is actually an exception to these. The number of Americans who have confidence in scientific leaders has remained unchanged since the 1970s. And again, this is really an amazing finding because it's not the impression you would get from reading the newspaper. Now, the American Academy report had four strong takeaways. One of them, as I've already mentioned, is that Americans expressed strong support for public investment in research. The American people believe that the federal government should be investing in scientific research. A majority of Americans view scientific research as broadly beneficial. And Americans support an active role for science and scientists in public life. So the idea that some of our scientific colleagues have that they should just do their science, but not you know, express opinions about policy or not get involved in public debate because that would somehow be seen as compromising their objectivity or compromising their impartiality. It's not actually supported by how the American people feel. The American people want to hear from scientists. They want to know what scientists think about important issues in public life. Now, it is also the case that Americans have varying interpretations of the word science and what people think of when you say science may not be the same as what a scientist or a historian of science would think. And the Academy suggested that we needed to do more research to understand how these differing interpretations influence perception of and support for science. And that made me very happy because my book, Why Trust Science, is all about trying to explain what science really is and what it isn't. And exploding some of the myths about science and trying to give a realistic appraisal of scientists' strengths and weakness. So the American Academy report focused only on the United States, but we find similar reports similar results in other countries. The Pew Foundation for the Study of People in Europe, Asia, sorry, the Pew, Pew Foundation study uh, looked at people in Europe, Asia, the United States, Canada, Brazil, and Russia, and found broad support for science in all of these countries. 82% of people surveyed said government investment in science are usually worthwhile, and most people in most countries had either a lot or some trust in science. In the United States, that figure was 77%. So only 17% of Americans say they have no trust or not much trust in science. So again, all of these data point to the same thing. There is no general crisis of trust in science. Moreover, if we look at other areas of science, for example, climate change, we see strong track records of success. So I just want to take a moment here to share a slide uh, with you from uh, my recent work. So this will just take me a moment to share the screen. Here we go. So one of the things I'm interested in my in my research is this idea of whether or not scientists get things right or wrong and under what circumstances scientists are likely to report good results or accurate results or true results versus what kinds of circumstances can stand in the way of an accurate appraisal of the natural world. And one of the things I encounter a lot in my my work on climate change is people who say, well, why should we try trust scientists because they're always getting things wrong. Well, 
the fact is scientists aren't always getting things wrong. And if we look at the history of climate science, we find an incredible record of getting things right. So I thought it would be fun to share with you today this slide. So can, can everyone see this? Maybe, actually I can't see your faces now because I'm screen sharing. Well, if you can't see it, then maybe the one of the hosts can let me know if there's a problem but I'm gonna assume it's okay since no one's objecting. So this is a, a, a graph showing some results from analysis that my research associate, Jeffrey Supran and I have done, looking at the projections that were made by a group of sciences, scientists in the 1970s as to how much climate change would occur from increasing carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So you can see on the x-axis is time uh, using the existing data that tells us what the temperature of the earth was going back to 1850. The red line is observation, so actual data, you know, what really happened in the real world. And then the gray lines are the projections that these scientists made. Um, and you can see from this chart that the actual observations from 1979 into to the present are spot on smack in the middle of the projections. So these scientists got this completely right. Now here's the punchline of the story. Who were these scientists? These were scientists at ExxonMobil Research, 1979. And we could give you similar results from academic researchers and government scientists working at the same time. Um, but this one is the most fun because it comes from Exxon. Okay, so I'm going to stop sharing. Okay, so this is just one example. And if we had more time, I could give you 10 scores, hundreds of examples of scientists making predictions that have come true or scientists revising what they believe, but in light of new evidence from the natural world, improving our understanding of the natural world. In the case of climate change, the key take home here though, is that nearly all of the major predictions that scientists made back in the 70s, 80s and 90s about temperature rise, about sea level rise, these predictions have all come true. So if anyone says scientists are always getting it wrong, that's just not true. It's just not true. So what is going on? Why do so many of us think that there is a crisis of trust in science? Why do we have this perception that, that science is in crisis? Well, I think the answer to that question has to do with the specificity of certain issues. We have this broad, uh, broad picture of science thriving, uh, working, and trusted. But behind this broad picture, there are some specific areas of trouble. And the most obvious that I think all of us know about is political polarization. And the less obvious one is what I have called implicatory denial. So let me talk a little bit about each of these. We all have an impression that we are greatly politically polarized in this country. And that is in fact supported by the data, particularly the data that look at how people think about science. So we can argue a lot about what polarization really is and how polarized we are overall as a country and whether it's just Congress that is polarized or whether the American people as a whole are polarized. Those are big issues and there's conflicting data on that. But when it comes to science, there is very, very, very clear evidence of political polarization in terms of the trust that the American people place in science or not. Studies show very clearly that trust in science in America is very often greater for those on the left of the political spectrum than for those on the right of the political spectrum. And this is actually true in many countries, but it's particularly true here in the United States. In the United States, 62% of people who self-identify as being on the left politically trust scientists to do what is right, but only 20% of people on the right 
And that's a giant difference. I mean, that's much, much larger than say the differences in how people feel about abortion or the filibuster or income inequality. It's a giant, giant divide. If we do it in terms of political party or party registration, 67% of people who identify as liberal Democrats have a lot of trust in science, but only 17% of conservative Republicans. So that's huge. That's telling us that the vast, vast majority of conservative Republicans don't actually have a lot of trust in science, whereas the vast majority of liberal Democrats do. And as I said, there are similar results in Canada, Australia, and much of Europe, but the polarization is particularly egregious here in the United States. So why is that? So what my research and my work with Eric Conway and, and with my graduate students has shown is that this political polarization is clearly linked to a second problem, which is the problem that I call implicatory denial. And what that means is the selective rejection of science. So not the general rejection of science across the board, but the particular rejection of science in specific areas because of its either real or perceived implications. So this is very important to understand. The rejection of science, for example, the science of climate change is not because of a problem in the science. It's not because the science is weak. It's not because the science is too uncertain. It's not because in some way the science is inadequate, like it relies too much on modeling or something like that. There is no evidence to support those hypotheses. But what there is abundant evidence to support is the conclusion that people reject science when they think the science implies either when it does imply or they think it implies things that they don't like. And this is where the rubber hits the road in terms of our understanding of some of the challenges that we face here in the United States in terms of accepting scientific findings. And it's really crucial for all of us to understand this, both scientists and humanists, because what the data suggests is that these problems cannot be solved by doing more or better science. They need to be solved with other kinds of approaches specifically social, scientific, and humanistic approaches. Approaches that take seriously how people feel about scientific findings and not just what those findings are. And this matters, of course, because if we misdiagnose the problem, then our proposed remedies will fail. So there are three areas in which this phenomenon is very well studied. Evolutionary biology, climate change, and COVID-19 and with COVID-19, the phenomenons of mask refusal and vaccine hesitancy. So let's talk a little bit about evolutionary biology. It's well known and statistics show that many evangelical Christians reject evolutionary theory. What a lot of people think, including many scientists, is that they think that this rejection is caused by the acceptance by evangelical Christians of a literal reading of the book of Genesis. Now that might be true in some cases, but if you read what evangelicals have actually written about evolutionary biology, it's generally not the argument that they make. They almost never cite the book of Genesis as why they reject evolutionary theory. What they cite are implications of the theory or what they perceive to be the implications of the theory for two big things. One is the existence of God and the other is the meaning of life. Now, I think we can all appreciate that these are important questions. There's nothing wrong with being interested in the meaning of life, and there's nothing wrong with believing in God. But the problem is the assumption about what evolutionary theory implies in these areas. So many evangelical Christians infer that evolutionary theory implies that one, there is no God, and two, that life is random and therefore meaningless, that there is no meaning of life. The former Pennsylvania Senator Rick Santorum put it this way, 
He said evolutionary theory makes humans into quote, mistakes of nature. But this is wrong. This is not the case. Evolutionary theory offers an account of the origin of species, an account of the diversity and characteristics of life on earth, and also an explanation of extinction. It does not tell us whether there is or is not a God. It does not tell us about the meaning of life. It cannot tell us those things because these are not scientific questions. These are philosophical, theological, and metaphysical matters. Thinking that evolutionary theory could offer an answer to the question of the meaning of life or the existence of God is what philosophers call a category error. We're confusing categories of analysis and making an error as a result of that confusion. Now, this actually leads to some good news. Once you recognize that this is the problem, that it has nothing to do or very little to do with a literal reading of the book of Genesis, then it offers a way forward to reach people. Because we now have good studies that show that if you take this seriously and if you engage students, so most of the studies that have been done have been on college students, but at least in principle, these arguments could apply with others as well. If you engage students on these issues, so in other words, don't ignore it. Don't say, oh, this is a science class. I can't talk about God because we don't talk about God in a science class. But if you actually acknowledge it and say, well, okay, I understand what the concern here, but then you explain that actually evolutionary theory doesn't disprove the existence of God and the meaning of life is not a scientific question. Then you can begin to say it is perfectly possible to accept evolutionary theory and still believe in God. And it's perfectly possible to accept evolutionary theory and still find a great deal of meaning in life. And there are many different ways that people have done this and studies now show that these can be effective. So for example, we can discuss the diverse way that scientists who accept evolutionary theory find meaning in their own lives. We can ex offer example of biologists such as the Brown biologist Ken Miller or Sir John Houghton recently passed away in Europe. Um, scientists who are themselves people of faith who believe in God but who also accept evolutionary theory and who have written eloquently about how they, I don't want to use the word reconcile because that implies that there's a conflict, but how they integrate their faith and their science in their own lives and their own research. And studies show that if you assign readings to students of this type in which scientists discuss how their religious views and scientific work um, are not just compatible, but actually reinforcing that many students stop rejecting evolutionary theory. They stop seeing it as a conflict and they say, oh, okay, I can accept evolutionary theory and I can still go to church on Sunday. So when you acknowledge what the implications are or the perceived implications and then freely and honestly and openly discuss them in a humanistic way, we find that some, not all, but much of the opposition can be reduced. Now note, this is a very different approach than what most scientists have historically done. Most scientists and defenders of evolution have thought that the solution to this problem of evolutionary biology rejection is to give people more facts, to give them more and more and more examples of how evolutionary biology works. Or if we think about creationism, some people have tried to refute creationism by giving specific examples uh, that refute creationist arguments. So some of you may be familiar with the creationist argument that the eye could not possibly have evolved through natural selection because of the problem of so-called irreducible complexity. And now there's a whole literature by scientists saying, no, 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 that's not true. And let me explain to you how the eye evolved. But that actually doesn't answer the question. But if you say to a student, well, let's talk about the meaning of life, that sometimes does. 
And of course, part of the problem we face is that scientists are very well trained in explaining how the eye evolved. They're not well trained in having a thoughtful conversation about a philosophical question like the meaning of life. So it means in the classroom, scientists maybe need to collaborate with philosophers in order to have those kinds of conversations. The key point here is that arguing the details of evolution misses the point. But discussing openly these questions and distinguishing between the physical and the metaphysical does not miss the point and therefore sometimes can resolve the problem. We see something similar in the area of climate change. We know very clearly the evidence is overwhelming and my own work in Merchants of Doubt was all about this, that people who reject climate change do not do so because the science is weak. In fact, Merchants of Doubt, when, when Eric Conway and I began that book, part of the question for us was, well, why are these people rejecting science? Because the people we were studying were scientists. They were famous scientists. They were brilliant scientists. They were people who had operated on the highest levels of American science. So it wasn't remotely plausible that they were rejecting climate change because they didn't understand the science. There clearly had to be something else going on. And what we saw was that it had nothing to do with the science and had everything to do with political ideology. In Merchants of Doubt, we focused on a handful of people who were important and influential, but the same pattern has now been shown to apply more broadly. Indeed, now that we have more than 30 years of high quality scientific data, uh, we can see that as the science of climate change has got stronger and stronger and stronger, almost none of the famous climate deniers changed their views. In fact, if anything, the opposite. As the science got stronger, the resistance became more entrenched. And again, that tells us the problem isn't something in the science. So if it's not the science, well, what is it? Well, let me, um, let me share a slide again here. Uh, share screen. Here we go. So even more than evolutionary biology, the rejection of climate science strongly correlates with political party. So this is from a poll in which Americans were asked whether climate change was a major threat. And you can see that uh, from 2010 to the present, the number increases quite a bit from only about 44% of Americans who thought it was a major threat to 60% now. Now that number is still really low compared to what scientists think. I mean, among climate scientists, something like 99% think that climate change is a major threat. So there's a, still a pretty big gap between what scientists are saying about the problem and what the American people think. But even more worrisome is the second part of the slide. Whoops, oh, sorry, here we go. This part here that the increased concern is almost entirely among Democrats. If you look at this lower part of the picture here in blue, 88% of Democrats say that climate change is a major threat to the well-being of the United States, but only 31% of Republicans. So again, this is a giant statistical gap. So why is this? Well, this is, an example of what I've called implicatory denial. What are the implications of climate change? If climate change, man-made anthropogenic climate change is real, what are the implications of that? Well, one implication is that at least on some level, we have to change the way we live. We have to change the way we use energy or what kind of energy we use. And those changes might be big, they might be small, but there's a good chance they'll be pretty big, or at least there's at least a risk that they could be pretty big. Like, I don't actually believe that we'll give up riding cars in America. I think we will switch to electric vehicles, which are actually terrific. But, you know, there is the possibility that we have to give up cars, right? So that would just be one example. 
Another possible implication is that capitalism has failed, that our economic system as we know it was supposed to bring us health and wealth and well-being. That was the whole promise of capitalism. And that was the argument that the Cold Warriors made in the 1950s to prove that capitalism was better than communism because communism was not bringing the people of the Soviet Union and China health and wealth and well-being. It was bringing them a lot of poverty, a lot of disease. But now our system, our capitalist system, which we thought was working well, turns out it has an Achilles heel. It's bringing us this deadly, climate change, which is leading to deadly storms, fires, and heat waves. Now, does that mean we have to abandon capitalism completely? Well, some people think that. That's what Naomi Klein argues. Other people don't think that. Um, I personally actually don't think that. But it means that something about the way we do business has to change. And if you believe deeply in capitalism, then this idea that there's an Achilles heel um, in capitalism, and maybe a big one, can be troublesome and, dis and, and disruptive. Or there's another way of thinking about this. Many economists have described climate change as a market failure. And in some ways, that shouldn't be a very threatening thing to say. Market failures have existed since there have been markets. But what is the remedy to a market failure? The remedy to a market failure is a government intervention in the marketplace. It means we need government to fix it. And maybe if the market failure is really big, we might need really big government. And if you're a conservative who doesn't like big government, then you're not going to like that implication. So what we see is that people who don't want to change, people who like the way they live, they like having big houses, big cars, big Christmas lights, displays, they like traveling a lot, uh, they like drinking imported wine, whatever. And especially people who don't want the government to drive change are likely to resist accepting the reality of climate change. And that is exactly what we see. So when you think of it in this way, what previously seems strange, like why in the world would Republicans reject scientific facts? Suddenly it's not so strange because we realize that almost by definition, progressives are people who embrace change and who generally embrace government as an agent of change. So if climate change means we need change and we need government to you know, nudge that change, for most progressives, that's fine. But conservatives by definition are people who resist change and who in America tend to be skeptical of government as an agent of change. And so conservatives either deny climate change completely, as many do, or they tend to downplay it and resist the suggestion that it requires major action. So we see this in the poll data. I mean, the question that I talked to you about was the question of whether climate change is a major threat. We see many Republicans saying, oh yeah, I accept that there's climate change. I just don't think it's a big deal. And we saw that with COVID-19 as, as well. Many conservatives, many Republican governors saying, oh, I'm not denying that COVID-19 is a disease, that it exists, but denying that it was a major threat, comparing it to the flu, just saying, oh, it's just like another flu, when in fact it wasn't. So as I've just said, if you look at this as people rejecting science, then it feels a bit baffling, especially when of the, many of the people are educated as they are. In fact, polls show that among Republicans, the more educated those Republicans are, the more likely they are to reject climate science. So that tells us something really important, right? This isn't about whether or not you're educated. It has to do with how you interpret in information. And when you look at it in terms of this difference between how conservatives and progressives think about change and how conservatives and progressives think about the role of the government as an agent of change, that actually makes total sense. So what is the solution? Well, this way of framing the problem makes clear what kinds of solutions might work and what kinds of solutions are bound to fail. What we clearly see won't work 
is facts, just more facts. These issues are not about the facts. Now, I'm not saying that facts don't matter. Obviously, facts matter enormously. Uh, they matter to the scientists who develop them. They matter to policymakers who, are, who need to make good judgments. And they matter to lots of people like college professors and school teachers who want to know what to teach their students. And so the clear and effective articulation of scientific information remains a very, very high priority. So I do not want to ever be interpreted as saying that facts don't matter. But what it does show is that this particular problem is not a failure of scientific information or a failure of scientific communication. It's not that people you know, don't understand the facts. And therefore, it's not the case that we could solve this problem simply by explaining the facts more clearly. But what we can do is to engage people on this question of the perceived implications. So just as in evolutionary biology, we can make headway by being willing to talk about the meaning of life and how we figure out what it is, if, it, if there is one or not, we can do the same thing with climate change. So for example, we can discuss a diversity of solutions, including market-based mechanisms, local rather than federal approaches. We can give examples where these sort of mechanisms have worked in the past, like acid rain. Or we can give examples of conservatives who have embraced these sorts of mechanisms and even maybe assign to students readings by conservatives who explain why they are in fact in favor of addressing climate change in this way. It's not a cure-all. There are certainly people who are so entrenched that no matter what you say, they won't listen. But you know, we all know people like that. We all have family members, but the vast majority of people are not that entrenched. They may be resistant, but they're not completely entrenched. And so giving them examples of how we can solve these problems while still addressing their concerns can in many cases make a difference. So uh, in the time remaining, let me say a few things about COVID-19 because it feels impossible to give a talk about science in 2021 and not at least talk a little bit about COVID-19. But I think by this point, you can already see where the argument is going. So I began my talk by reminding everyone that scientists have produced remarkably effective vaccines in an astonishingly short amount of time. This is a huge accomplishment for which they deserve tremendous credit. But as many of you may know, recent data show that many Americans don't want the vaccine. Half of us plan to get the vaccine as soon as we can, but 19% of us want to wait and see, and 24% of us don't plan to get it ever if we can avoid it. Put another way, only half of us plan to get the vaccine as soon as possible. Many of us, myself included, have been desperately waiting for this vaccine, eager to get it as soon as possible. And when I had the opportunity to sign up for a vaccine last week, I was on my computer and within minutes had signed up. And I'm happy to report that I had my first shot and had no adverse effects. But 24% of Americans, one in four, do not plan to get this vaccine ever if they can avoid it. And again, it's deeply polarized politically. And it's interesting, it's, well, it's not quite as polarized as the climate data, but, it's, but it shows the same kind of pattern. Among Democrats, 72% are eager to get the vaccine. Among Republicans, 40% will avoid ever getting it if they can. And this, of course, is very significant, both for the health and safety of Republicans, uh, but also for the health and safety of everyone, because as we've all heard repeatedly in the past year, in order to really get this thing under control, we need herd immunity. To get herd immunity, we probably need 90 to 95, well, maybe 80 to 90% of Americans to be immune. And that will be very, very difficult to achieve if, you know, 
a significant part of the country, 25% don't get vaccinated. And if they don't get vaccinated, it means that this pandemic in a way never goes away, that we live with it forever. And it could be something like flu, where you'll have to get a shot every year. Now that's not the end of the year. Many millions of Americans do get annual flu shots and millions of Americans do fine with those flu shots, but all shots do have some side effects. And there's always some small percentage of the population who uh, will have a serious side effect. So a shot that you have to get every year, year after year after year raises the risks, both to the people who aren't vaccinated, but also to the people they are. And of course also raises the costs. So this is a very, very serious matter. Now here's an interesting detail. If we look at age, among Democrats, age makes no difference to how people feel about the vaccine. But among Republicans, older Republicans want the vaccine. 63% of Republicans over the age of 65 have either already got it or plan to get it as soon as possible. But if you're under 65 and a Republican, in that group, only 33 are willing to get the vaccine right away, and nearly half of them never want to get it at all. So what we have is the specter of most Republicans under the age of 65 resisting getting the vaccine. Now, if we look at masks, we see a similar pattern. Governors in blue states almost all imposed mask mandates, which were widely observed. Governors in red states either did not impose mandates, or if they did, they were widely flouted. And so here we can introduce one more factor that clearly affects people's thoughts and actions, and that's the role of leadership. We know that early on that President Trump dismissed the threat. He suggested that it was no worse than the flu. He suggested it would go away on its own like magic. He refused to wear a mask and publicly flouted the whole notion of wearing a mask, as did his vice president, Mike Pence. He was reluctant to use federal authority or to spend federal funds to address the threat and refused to invoke some of the authority that the federal government had, such as the War Production Act, to accelerate the production of masks or vaccines. And we've seen a similar pattern among Republican leaders across the country, even to the point that in some Southern states, we had fights between the governors, who in many cases were Republicans and mayors of major cities, for example, Memphis, where the mayor was democratic. And of course, this pattern then was picked up by Republican constituents. So why did Republicans do this? I mean, I think we have to assume that these Republican governors did not want people to die. They did not want the citizens of their states to suffer, but yet they took actions that did in fact result in death, suffering and death. So why did they do it? Well, some of it was the ideology of limited government, which has dominated Republican thinking uh, since Ronald Reagan and has been an element of Republican thinking for the entire 20th century. Republican politicians in general did not want the federal government to invoke the War Production Act or to launch a big federal effort on any level. They wanted it left to the states. And this is consistent with Republican Party positions for the past 40 years. So that's really no surprise. Now, some of it, though, was more ideological. I mean, the idea of federal versus state power is, is partly ideological, but there's also an element that's even more explicitly ideology. And it's the belief in individualism and personal rights. So in Kansas, the governor of Kansas, who didn't want to impose a mask mandate, said in, a quote, in an interview, quote, I think we can trust people to do the right thing famous last words. The governor of South Dakota insisted it was, quote, a personal decision and a matter of, quote, personal responsibility. That's an expression we hear Republican leaders using a lot and not something for the state to enforce. So it, it gets into the issue of who has the responsibility here? Is it the government or is it individuals? And this, again, is conservative with 
consistent with conservative ideology broadly. Now, some of it goes further into areas that are even more obviously and explicitly ideological. So here I'm going to, um, to share a couple more slides. But if you look at the language and the posters in the anti-mask rallies, we see a kind of classic glorification of freedom and a very characteristic hostility to government and a kind of libertarian spirit of defiance. So for example, let me just show you a couple of slides here. Oh, I am screen. Oh, I've been screen sharing this whole time, it looks like. Okay, well, there you go. So um, here, are some, here are some pictures from uh, one rally that show mass rejection expressed as individualism and personal rights. My rights are essential. Give me liberty or give me COVID-19. Well, that man will probably get them both. But, or this one, which obviously was meant to be in the face of abortion rights activists, my body, my choice. Now, of course, it's not just her body, her choice, because whether or not she wears a mask affects all the people around her. But the rejection of masks is expressed as in terms of individual liberty, individual choice, and personal rights. Or here's a, one that also plays in with a lot of libertarian ideology, mass rejection expressed as a defiance of tyranny. So this uh, picture of a mask, the new symbol of tyranny, freedom matters, no force mass, we will not comply, uh, masked, mandated mass, strict governments, I can't even read that, strict something and control tracing what's next. And of course that feeds into the, uh, conspiracy theory that has gone around about the idea that the vaccines have little trackers in them so the government will be able to track uh, your work. Or this one, which is from Canada, showing this is not a problem only in the United States, protect our civil liberties, walk for freedom. And this is an anti-mask, anti-vaccine, uh, anti-shutdown rally. And then this one, this is kind of one of my favorite, government kills more than COVID. So a right-wing hostility to government, seeing the government as the enemy rather than as the expression of the will of the people. And this, these two posters, mind control. I love the fact that these two different people have the identical poster protesting mind control. And then there's probably one other thing going on, which I would say is a kind of spillover of rejecting science in other domains. So if you're a conservative who has rejected evolutionary science or rejected climate science, uh, this one, no scientific proof is the new, no new normal. So claiming the way climate, climate deniers often claim there's no proof of climate change. So now there's no scientific proof of COVID-19. All of this in a way, I think adds up to a general conservative radical radically individualistic attitude, which I call the don't tell me what to do attitude. Um, so here's another poster, I will not be masked, tested, tracked, or poisoned. So kind of slippery slope argument, it begins today with masking, it, it ends with the government killing me. And then this one that I just pulled off the internet, don't tell me what to do, and I won't tell you where to go. So to sum up, as I've already suggested, none of this has anything to do with science. None of these posters are asking what is the size of the clinical trial, how many people got adverse effects from uh, the vaccine, um, you know, are there any people for whom mask wearing isn't safe? I mean, there are legitimate scientific questions that could be asked about, um, about many, many things about COVID-19, and none of those questions are showing up in any of these posters in the rally. What we see are a set of arguments about personal liberty, about the role of government, um, and about the perception that government telling us to wear masks is a kind of first step on a road to tyranny. And that's essentially the same argument that we have seen used in debates over climate change.
So to conclude, so what I hope you will take away from this talk today is the idea that science doesn't need to be saved. Science is doing very well, but we as a society need help. We need help because our scientific findings are increasingly showing us that there are problems with a radically individualistic philosophy, problems with a philosophy that glorifies competition and omits or disparages the, the ways in which society requ requires cooperation, that there are problems with leaving decisions to individuals. I can understand that an individual might not want to wear a mask, but that decision affects me and everyone around me. It's like the debate over secondhand smoke. Before we knew that secondhand smoke killed our neighbors, the tobacco industry used to always argue, well, it's a personal choice. Now, we can debate about that when we're talking about an addictive, uh, an addictive product, one that the industry knowingly made more addictive. But on some level, if smoking only affects the individual, you could argue that that individual, so long as they have good information, has the right to make that decision for themselves. But when it turned out that smoking killed bartenders and waitresses and flight attendants and spouses and children, then it becomes a very different, very different ethical calculus. And finally, we also have this problem that climate change shows that markets can be very effective for many things. They can solve many problems, but they can't solve all our problems. And in fact, they have created some really big ones. And if we can't have a conversation about markets, what they do and don't do well, then we are very hamstrung in trying to fix the problem of climate change. Leaving everything to individual choice or to the magic of the marketplace has given us the opioid crisis, a crisis of affordable housing, the unaddressed damages of climate change. Sorry, I just lost my place. Sorry. Leaving everything to individual choice or to the magic of the marketplace has given us the opioid crisis, a crisis of affordable housing, the unaddressed damages from climate change. And now it has given us more than 500,000 Americans dead from COVID-19. And as President Biden just said in his speech the other night, this is more Americans than have died in all of the wars of the 20th century, World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq put together. So we have seen colossal losses in this country and it's not because the science wasn't good but because for a variety of ideological and intellectual and philosophical reasons, many of us, including much of our leadership, didn't want to accept the science and didn't want to act on what the science told us. So put another way, some implicatory denial is rooted in confusion. Evolutionary biology does not disprove the existence of God, but some implicatory denial tracks elements of truth. Climate change does tell us that there is a problem in our economic system. We can argue about how exactly to characterize that problem, but there is a problem. And what that tells us is that we will never solve these problems with more science, no matter how good that science is. But we may be able to solve them with a better discussion of the potential remedies. And that means looking at these problems, not just in their scientific dimensions, but in all their messy social, cultural, and human complexities. Thank you very much. Thanks, Naomi, for that fascinating uh, talk. And um, I, uh, you know, as the director of the Humanity Center, I'm delighted to have you end on that note. Um, we have already a number of questions. Uh, the first is is from uh, my emeritus colleague uh, Daniel Pope in the History Department, and his question is about arguments from authority. 
Daniel finds it hard to avoid uh, avoid it when he's talking with someone denying climate change or anti-fluoridation, in part because he knows uh, he doesn't know the science very well himself. But he finds it persuasive that 99% of scientists believe climate change is a major threat. Is there a role for arguments from authority in combating rejection of particular scientific truths? Yes, absolutely. And I, I really appreciate that question because this is something that I grapple with as well, because most of us were raised to think that the appeal to authority was a logical fallacy. I no longer think that's true. I think that there actually is no way to answer these questions without at least some degree of appeal to authority. And this is actually a major part of the argument in my book, Why Trust Science. The reality is we don't all have time or the capacity to do our own science. We rely on scientists as experts, um, as knowledgeable people, as people whose job it is to answer these questions, to do this work for us. We relied on immunologists to develop a vaccine, just in the same way that we, we rely on plumbers to fix our plumbing when the pipes go bad, or an electrician to fix the electricity. I mean, most of us would think it was nuts if we tried to fix our electricity ourselves. We would know that that was far too dangerous. And if we have a home, it might be illegal because you know your wiring has to be certified by a registered electrician. So in our daily life, we accepted that we rely on other authorities, car mechanics, plumbers, dentists, doctors, nurses, and society would break down if we didn't. But there's this kind of weird thing that's happened in recent years that somehow we feel embarrassed or ashamed about appealing to the authority of science. And so I think we need to embrace that authority and to say, of course, we appeal to the authority of science because these are the people whose job it is to do this work for us. And they do do it for us. The people who invented these vaccinations, well, I mean, some of them will certainly make money, but they did it because society needed and wanted these vaccinations. So I think that, um, it is appropriate to make that argument, but also to be mindful of the fact that because so many people have been taught that the appeal to authority is a logical fallacy, to challenge them and say, no, it's not illogical to appeal to authority. In fact, the opposite, it's illogical to reject the findings of experts who have studied these things closely, the people that we hired. I mean, most scientists in America um, work on federal funds. So we've hired these people to do this work for us. And it's a logical fallacy to reject that. So our next question has to do with where you've ended up, which is how do we as a country go about changing people's minds? And our first speaker in our in this year uh, was uh, Tony Leiserwitz, who runs the Center for Climate Change Communication at Yale. And uh, our, our questioner is wondering, are there, have you, do you know anything about that work or similar work which attempts to use the tools of mass communication to try to uh, refute uh, implicatory denial, for example. Yeah, I know Tony's work well, and in fact, implicitly in in the talk when I referred to various studies, his work is one of the most important, kind of a benchmark really on the distribution of opinions about climate change and the reasons why uh, people feel the way they do. You know, I think this is a really complicated issue and the American people are complex and diverse, and I don't think there will ever be a one size fits all pro solution to this problem. But I think broadly the solution that I suggested here is consistent with Tony's work and other social scientists, which is to say, for a really long time, scientists have interpreted these problems as problems of scientific illiteracy. They have thought 
and they have invested money in solutions focused on, quote, educating people about the science. And that meant, and by educating, they meant things like, well, explaining the difference between the troposphere and the stratosphere, or explaining what a climate proxy is and how we know um, that the observed temperature variations are not natural variability. And that's all useful and important work. And certainly when I give public talks, people will sometimes ask, well, how do we know it's not natural variability? And that's a perfectly legitimate question. And I always try to answer it. But I think what social scientific research shows is that it's not enough, that there are these other more subtle, more philosophical, more metaphysical, more ideological issues at stake. And to to address that, you have to engage that. You can't just pretend that it doesn't exist or it doesn't matter. Or as many scientists I know do, they'll say, well, I don't want to get involved in the politics. I don't, I don't like politics. I mean, I can't tell you how often I hear that from people, including my own students. I mean, a lot of people have a picture of politics as sort of ugly and messy and nasty and self-interested and politicians as being egotistical. Um, and of course, politicians can be egotistical. But I mean, these are political questions. These are questions that engage us in our lives and the role of government in our lives. And so you have to be willing to engage the political dimension. And that means that in some cases, scientists are not the best people to do this work. It's humanists and social scientists. And so if I have a message, um, it's to really encourage more faculty in the social sciences and the humanities to take on these issues. And as someone who spent the last, you know, 20 years of my life in either history or history of science department. I mean, one of the things I observed when I was in history department was that a lot of my historical colleagues really didn't see questions about climate change or evolutionary biology or, or disease as historical questions. They saw them as scientific questions or maybe, maybe possibly, you know, in the niche area of environmental history, but they didn't really see these things as mainstream historical questions. So in a sense, the humanists were making the same mistake as the scientists, right? Like leaving it to the scientists when in fact, these are some of the biggest historical and cultural questions of our era. How did we come to this terrible point where so many of our fellow citizens reject information that actually could save their own lives, right? I mean, scientists will not answer that question, but historians and, and sociologists and, and political scientists may be able to. So our next question is a question that's a more general one about, and, and I guess it would probably uh, speak to the question about the degree to which this phenomenon that you've described in the United States is happening in other nations. The question is about the relationship between public trust in science and liberal democracy, or perhaps the relationship of public trust in science and different kinds of governmental forms. Um, have you found that this is this kind of phenomenon exists regardless of political system, or is it, you know, you showed us a slide of Canada uh, in liberal democracies that are less individualistic in orientation? Is it less common that there's this kind of this skepticism about science that uh, is in tension with political beliefs? Yeah. So I haven't studied other countries in detail. Most of my work focuses on the United States, but I have done some comparative work and, and thought about this question. So the answer is yes, it definitely is different and it definitely is culturally situated. So for example, there's good evidence now to show that um, countries that have more a less individualistic approach to things and a more collectivistic approach have done much better in the COVID-19 crisis. And that includes both many Asian countries. I mean, actually nearly all of the major Asian countries, Singapore, Taiwan, Korea, um, Vietnam, have all had much better COVID-19 outcomes than the United States, 
irrespective of whether they were rich or poor countries. So this is really interesting that we often assume that rich countries are better able to deal with natural disasters and other kinds of challenges than poor countries. But in this case, it cuts in a different way. So Korea, South Korea is a very wealthy country. Vietnam is a relatively poor country, but they've both had good COVID outcomes because in both cases, these countries embraced early on an active role for the government in contract trace contact tracing and quarantining. So in other words, they followed standard public health advice that you could use for any uh, epidemic or pandemic, and it worked highly effectively. And I think there are many people who would argue that in part they were able to do that because these are countries in which the idea that there's a kind of community responsibility um, is more readily embraced than that idea is embraced here in the United States or Canada. But you know, also New Zealand, right? New Zealand has been much discussed, has famously done much, much better uh, than the United States. Uh, and, you know, anyone who spent time in New Zealand knows that even though it's a Western country like the United States in many ways, it's also very different in terms of New Zealanders having a much less radically individualistic approach to life. And, and one of the things I sometimes like to say, one of the things that's been interesting to me about the work I've done these last 10 years is giving public lectures in a wide variety of places, both in the United States and abroad, and seeing the differences in the questions that audiences ask and the kinds of answers they want. Because often when people ask questions, based on the way they frame the question, you can tell what kind of an answer they're hoping for. And so when I, when I finished the book tour for Merchants of Data, I remember coming home and saying to my husband, it's really interesting. Um, Americans want me to tell them that we can solve this problem with technology. New Zealanders want me to tell them that we have to change the way we live. Fascinating, fascinating. So the next question, I'm, I'm hoping I'm getting the force of the question. It's, it's about, again, this uh, difference between the trust in science among conservatives and liberals. This questioner uh, has believes, based on what they've uh, learned, that this that there's this distinction that conservatives exhibit less trust in science in regard to a wide range of issues, even ones that are nonpartisan. Uh, uh, on its face, this questioner then asks, uh, why would it be that conservative wishes should clash with science more than liberal ones? Well, two things. This is actually a difficult question to get really good data on because um, often polls are are posed either as generic questions in trust in science, or they're posed as specific questions about areas that we already know are problematic, like evolutionary biology. So we don't have a lot of good data asking conservatives how they feel about gravity or Newton's laws of motions or plate tectonics. Um, but where we do have evidence, we do see that a lot of conservatives are simply rejecting science in particular areas. So there are many conservatives who are perfectly fine with things like plate tectonics or um, you know, DNA as the site of hereditary information. So there is a kind of selective rejection uh, in particular areas. And that fits with the argument that I've made about implicatory denial. Now, however, that said, it is true that conservatives are more likely to express distrust in science broadly than liberals. And I would attribute that to be a kind of spillover effect. Because one of the things we know is that, say, for example, in the climate change domain, Climate change, climate science rejectors have said a lot of bad things about scientists. They've said that scientists are not to be trusted, that they have a liberal political agenda, 
uh, scientists have been accused of fudging the data in order to fit the policies of, you know, the democratic administrations, which I always say is a bit ridiculous since none of our democratic administrations have actually had clear climate policies. Um, uh, or that scientists are just in it for the money, they're trying to get attention, they're trying to get more money for their research. So if you're a conservative and you hear these sorts of things repeatedly on Fox News or wherever, um, or read it in conservative media, then you know it's not surprising that it's, on some level that would at least influence you a little bit. And so I think we do see that. I think we see um, a kind of generalized skepticism towards science that is much more common among conservatives than among uh, liberals because of this sort of drumbeat of anti-science rhetoric to which they have been exposed over the past 20 years or so. So uh, this question is a follow-up on the, the sort of phenomenon of implicatory denial. You've said that in the case of scientists who were opposed to climate change science, that as the science has increased, their denial has intensified. And, and the, this question is interested in this in relation not to uh, scientific evidence about COVID-19, but to the fact of such a large number of deaths that have resulted from COVID-19. That's not information that's coming from scientists. That's information that's evident. I mean, many of us know people who have died because of COVID-19. How can the vax deniers or the uh, the mask skeptics or the COVID-19 skeptics, how do they, how does their implicatory denial deal with that reality? 500,000 plus Americans dead from COVID. It's a great question. I think that probably the answer right now is it's too soon to tell. I don't think we actually have enough studies to see how people's thinking has changed as the death toll has mounted. So one thing we do know for sure is that early uh, in the pandemic, there were Republican leaders who said, this isn't that serious, it's just a flu. Donald Trump said that even after he had been sick and had been given absolute round the clock, 24 seven, minute by minute treatment, uh, experimental treatments, the whole nine yards, you know, he came out of the hospital and said, oh, it was no big deal. Um, so there were, there were a lot of reasons for people who followed the president to believe that it was no big deal and that it was being exaggerated. So now we fast forward to the present, more than 500,000 are dead, we'll probably hit 600,000 before this is over. Will some of those people say, oh, wow, I guess that wasn't worse than the flu. I mean, presumably, yes, presumably they should. But on the other hand, I suspect that if you ask the average American how many Americans die from flu every year, they would have no idea, right? They wouldn't be able to give you a number. So I suspect many people would have trouble placing this into context. But still, 500,000 is a huge number. And as I've said, and as President Biden has emphasized, more than have died in all of the wars of the 20th century. I mean, it certainly seems like um, that number, that fact should have some, you know, should move the needle at least a little bit. But here's the thing. One of the things we know about how this line of thinking or reasoning works is it's perfectly possible that someone could say, oh yeah, this did turn out to be pretty bad. An awful lot of people died, including some people I know, but I still don't want the vaccine. I still don't trust it. I think it was, you know, hurried. It was rushed. I think that, you know, Bill Gates is putting tracking devices into it. You know, there, there are all kinds of excuses and rationalizations and explanations people can make. And one thing we know about human cognition is we're all very, very good at rationalization. We're all very good at coming up with the reasons to justify our positions. So I think, and, and I mean, 
I've I've met you know I make a point of when I give public talks and even on Zoom of talking to people who you know who are skeptical about climate change or COVID nineteen or whatever it is, and I you know I've met a number of people who do think that it or who have said in the past it was no worse than the flu. I certainly can imagine some of those people saying, oh, okay, it did turn out to be worse, but I still don't want the vaccine. So this next question actually concerns uh, the point you made about the vaccine. You, you pointed out that I think you said 24% of Americans never want the vaccine. And that raises a concern about whether we can ever reach herd immunity. And I'm wondering if there have, I know it's early yet, have there been any studies done that have tracked whether people's attitudes about the vaccine can evolve so that that number, that 24% might decrease as more people get the vaccine and presumably the, the COVID numbers improve. Yeah, definitely. And I think there is grounds for optimism there. So um, this gets a little bit outside my expertise. I'm not an expert in communication, but I think um, we do know there's what's known in communications theory as the trusted messenger theory. Um, there's good evidence that most of us, I mean, you know, the, the person who asked earlier about appealing to the 99% of scientists who accept the evidence of climate change, most of us don't make our decisions by reading IPCC reports or even going to the CDC homepage. Like I'm, I've always been amazed about how much research I can get done just by reading what CDC has to say on its webpage because apparently nobody else does that. Um, so there's a lot of low hanging fruit in this, in this area. But we know that people are influenced primarily by friends, family, and trusted messengers. And trusted messengers could be things like a clergy person, could be a teacher, could be a neighbor who's a doctor. I mean, I know my husband's a hydrologist. We constantly get questions um, from neighbors about hydro hydrological questions, right? And I get asked all the time by friends and neighbors about things they think I might know something about. Um, you know, anyone who's a college professor has probably had the experience of having friends or family ask them some question that, that their friends and family see them as being, you know, an authority on. Um, but trusted messengers can also be celebrities, right? I mean, think about all the celebrities who have millions of Instagram followers. So um, this means that if we try to get the message out to trusted messengers, that we can influence the way people think. And so there is already a movement taking place in the African-American community to get um, clergymen, people in African-American churches to speak to their clergy about the importance of vaccination. And I think there is good evidence uh, to suggest that if people hear about it from trusted messengers, that some of the hesitancy can in fact be modified. Um, the other thing we know also influences people's behavior is the behavior of the people around them, right? That we're very social, humans are very social animals, we're herd animals. Um, there's the phrase social contagion, which I don't know if that's a good or bad expression because contagion implies something bad, but uh, and there's also what we call peer pressure, which also implies something bad. But there's the good side of social contagion, which is if we see friends, families, colleagues, neighbors getting vaccinations um, and doing fine, then that may influence us to say, oh, yeah, it seems like it's okay. So this means that it's extremely important to talk about it. And this is something that I think many, this is a really important message that many people don't know. There's a tendency among many of us to avoid awkward and difficult questions because we don't want confrontations. And so one of the things we know about climate change is that many people just don't talk to their friends and family about it because they view it as too contentious. So, you know, this is the sort of Uncle Joe at the Thanksgiving dinner problem. I mean, it's a pre-COVID characterization, right? But, you know, Uncle Joe is a climate denier. What am I going to do at Thanksgiving? I just won't talk about it. If he raises it, I'll just say, let's talk about something else. It's Thanksgiving. 
all of the social scientific evidence says that that's the wrong approach that actually being willing to talk about it, not necessarily in a confrontational way, but in a calm way and say, well, actually Uncle Joe, you know, there's huge amounts of evidence that this is real. Um, we've known about it for a long time and people are getting hurt. People are dying. People are losing their homes and their livelihood. Crops are failing. Livestock is being killed. Um, houses are, you know, being swept away in hurricanes and floods. Um, and I just think that it's kind of unconscionable to deny the reality when people are getting hurt, that if you talk about it, that actually helps. And so I think it's going to be the same with the vaccination. I think it's going to be extremely important for all of us, you know, just to find ways to tell friends and neighbors, family members, yeah, I got my vaccine, it was great, you know, a little soreness, but no big deal. And, and now I'm like really excited about getting my second shot. And I am, because this is, I'm not just making this one up. Uh, I'm so excited to get my second shot. I can't tell you how, how happy I was. I have my card it's right here in my desk drawer it's like i cannot wait till march 30th to get my second shot and then to wait two more weeks so i can hug my daughter again and meet a friend for a drink and maybe take a beach vacation i mean all the good things that i'm looking forward to doing now that i've had that i'll you know I'll get my shots and i think the more we talk about that the more we normalize it it won't persuade everyone it won't persuade the diehard conspiracy theorists who think they're being tracked but it will definitely have an effect to reduce hesitancy among many people so I, I hope I'm getting the force of this next question. I'm not sure I am. Is there any relationship between pushes for science-based decision-making and the emergence of category errors in perspectives on societal problems and policies that science informs? Yes, thank you for that. So I really don't like the phrase science-based decision-making. I think that conjures up a lot of bad images of technocratic decision-making as if, if we only had the scientific facts, we would know what to do. I think we know that that's wrong. I think what we know is that science is an extremely important part of decision-making, particularly in terms of identifying what the likely consequences of certain kinds of actions could be. So again, if we just think about COVID-19, the promise was never that if we wore masks, there would be no COVID-19 deaths. No, nobody, nobody ever thought that, but that if we wore masks, we could reduce the rate of spread and therefore reduce the number of fatalities. And now that a year is out and we've seen the difference between countries who did and didn't do this, the evidence is clear that, that those data were correct. But again, as this example shows, even if we had done that, if people refuse to wear masks, if people won't comply, if there's no enforcement, then just having the facts, the scientific facts alone is insufficient. I always say that science is a necessary but not sufficient condition for good decision making. And so I really don't like the term science-based decision making. I think that that um, exaggerates how much science can do for us and displaces the really important cultural and humanistic considerations that you know this whole talk was trying to highlight. So um, I don't know what a better expression would be, uh, but I think it has to be something that talks about respecting scientific information and the value that that information has in our lives, but integrating it with the legitimate concerns that people have about decision-making, about the role of government. I mean, you know, my next book with Eric Conway is, is all about this question about the role of government and the relative power of markets versus governance. And the question of what role government plays in our lives is a totally legitimate one. It's a huge one. It's totally appropriate to have that conversation. What's not appropriate is to lie about government or to misrepresent the role of government in history. And so, you know, one example we have in our new book uh, is, is social security. 
a lot of conservatives have been attacking Social Security ever since it was put in place. And they attacked it because they didn't like the idea of the government taking on that role. They thought that families, communities, churches should play the role of taking care of old people. Okay, you know, that's a, that's a debate that you could have and it's a debate that this country did have. And the conclusion that we came to back in the 1930s was that relying on friends and families was incomplete. That there were a lot of old folks who simply didn't have the friends, the families, the social networks to take care of them. And so we had, you know, a whole generation of impoverished elderly people and also widows and other people who are eligible under social security for benefits. So now we fast forward to the, to the present old people in America are no longer poor, right? I mean, Social Security allows most Americans who have worked to live a reasonably decent, you know, middle-class lifestyle in their old age. So this program has been a giant success. It has achieved exactly what it was set up to achieve, which is the definition of success of a, of a program, whether it's in government or education or, or business. But yet you will continue to hear Republicans and other conservatives say, oh, the system's broken. It's not going to be around for us in the future. Um, you know, it needs to be privatized. And this is just false. And this is just not true. So what do we do about that? So I think that in a case like that, we say, look, it's totally legitimate to have a conversation about the role of government in our lives. We should be having that conversation. And we shouldn't make science a proxy for questions that are actually political and social. But we also need to have facts and we also need to have a respect for facts. And when people say things that are just completely untrue, whether it's about climate change or social security, we need to call that out and say, look, I'm happy to have a conversation with you about social security, but I'm not happy to stand by and listen to you lie about the history of this program. Uh, Naomi, we've come to the end of our questions. Uh, that, that last response, I think, is a wonderful one to end on. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time to talk to us today on these fascinating topics. And thanks to our audience for those really interesting questions. Um, it's really been a pleasure, Naomi, hosting you. Thanks so much for coming. Likewise, it's been a pleasure for me as well. Take care. For more information on other upcoming virtual events sponsored by the Oregon Humanities Center and to contribute to supporting exciting humanities events and research programs, visit ohc.uoregon.edu. Thanks so much for watching. We'll see you next time.